Thank you, Luke. So the exodus just occurred there. So shortly after the exodus, as um, you remember, they ended up at Mount Sinai. And they received the commandments, the tremendous revelation from God. And God was leading them um, over to the promised land. And when they got there, they decided they did not want to go. Uh, They were fearful. And so because of their lack of faith, even though the promises and the presence of God was with them, um, they were judged to have to wander out in the wilderness for 40 years. During that time, even though they were wandering in the wilderness that 40 years, that's a long time, under God's judgment, at the same time, uh, the manna that he provided for them to eat never failed. Even under God's judgment, God was providing and he was uh, bringing blessing to those who would be able to receive it. Now in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, we're at the other end of the journey. Now they've been out in the wilderness for quite a long time and now they're once again approaching, drawing close to the area that they will um, eventually inherit. But as they're going... Um, We're in chapter 21, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Uh, It's important to understand that uh, Miriam has died, and Aaron also has died. And so as far as the leadership team, the three that God used mostly uh, to lead the people during this time, two-thirds are gone. And so uh, there they are in chapter 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor, that's where Aaron was buried, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So we lived in a world filled with snakes. They're around us. There was even one in the Garden of Eden in paradise. And that has not changed. For those who know the Lord and are being led by Him, oftentimes we have one understanding of our walk with Him and we discover, like the Israelites discovered, that oftentimes it's the crises that really reveal the heart. It's the crises that helps us understand the depth of our relationship with the Lord or the lack of it. And that's what was happening here. So they've been on the road for a long time. Um, They're tired. The goal is there. It's not that far away, consider where they've come and how far they've been on 
been traveling. And the thing that created this crisis was that when they, when they got there, they wanted to pass through Edom. Edom was in the south, and then there was Moab and Ammon on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, Edom was the southern part down here underneath it. And they were having to go through Edom to get over to the area that God was leading them to. And, the, and so they sent a message to the king of Edom. This is in chapter 20. And they said, look, um, we don't have a quarrel with you. Uh, look, brother, because Edom was a descendant of Esau, and Israel is a descendant of Jacob. Brother, we want to pass through your kingdom. We won't harm anything. We won't take anything. We'll buy all the food that we eat. We will pay for the water that we drink. Just let us travel through um, on our way. And the king of Edom said, no, can't come through here. And if you try to come through here, we will attack you. And they looked up, and the king of Edom had his army mobilized, and they were on the border with the weapons. You're not going to come through here. So they're having to take a detour, unexpected, unlooked for, and really, when you look at it, uncalled for. Um, God spared Edom at this time because, uh, it tells you later on in the book of Joshua, because God had given that hill country of the southern plains there, the hill country of Seir, to Esau. God had given him that. That was their homeland. And the Israelites were trying to pass through that to get to their homeland. And the king of Edom said, no, you're not going to allow it. So because there was a covenant between Esau and God, God had given it to them, they couldn't attack their brothers. So they went around. It's while they're going around, it says that they grew impatient on the way. Uh, why doesn't God hurry up? Why do we have to go around? We weren't intending to go around. It's their hardness of heart. It's their sin making us go all the way around. And they were impatient and they were angry. You know, sometimes as we come before God, even with our prayers and all of that, we get impatient in the way. Uh, well, Lord, I prayed today, I, I prayed yesterday, and now it is today and I don't have the answer yet. Uh, either you don't care or you're not going to answer or I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I, I prayed yesterday. Why, why isn't the answer here? Now, everything that Jesus did, he did for us. And if you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jesus was there with the disciples, and he was transfigured in their presence, transformed. The veil was pulled aside partially for a brief while, and the glory of the presence of God was shining through, radiating through Jesus, and the disciples saw it. Now, as you read through the New Testament, there's only two other instances where the word for transfigured is used. And it's used in Romans and it's used in Corinthians. And when Paul uses it, he applies it to Christian people. And he tells us that every day as we keep our eyes focused on the Lord and as we're walking with him, we are being transformed, transfigured into his likeness in ever-increasing ways. So what happened, what Jesus revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, God intends for you and for me. For Jesus, it took place just in a second. For us, it takes a lifetime. But in that 
lifetime of walking with the Lord, he is transforming us as surely as the transfiguration of Jesus on Mount Sinai because Jesus is in us and his glory, his radiance shining through us. It's just a long-term project for us. Sometimes we get impatient for the glory of the Lord to be seen in us and through us. Like the Israelites, the way is long, unexpected detour, crises unlooked for and unexpected come, challenges to our faith. But if we keep focused on him, he will lead us through and the glory of the Lord will shine through us because of the presence of his son who is the glory of the Lord. But the Israelites missed all that. They, uh, they grew impatient. When they grew impatient, they began to grumble. They began to complain. They were actually rebelling against God and Moses, his leader. So they spoke against God and against Moses. And then they began to question God's motive. And I think this may be the reason that God sent the serpents and why it was a serpent made of bronze or brass that they had to put up on that pole. Because this is an echo of Genesis 3, isn't it? Where the serpent in the wilderness begins to question, uh, in the Garden of Eden, begins to question the motive of God. And he plunts that doubt in the heart of Adam and Eve, and then there's a, they're not happy with what God had given them. So look around us. We are a blessed people. We are a blessed nation. And everything that we have is a result of grace. It's all gift. Everything is a gift. The health of our bodies, the talents and abilities that we have, we haven't done anything to earn them or deserve them. God just gives them to us when we're born. These are all gifts that God has given to us. So they began to grumble and complain against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? He's leading them to their homeland. He's leading them to the place that he has provided for them. You remember Jesus told the disciples, I'm going away because I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. The place is there. You're on the journey. Don't get weary in the, on, the, on the trip. You brought us out here to die. There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Wow. Well, they didn't have bread because they weren't uh, growing wheat or millet or spelt or any of the other things they used to make bread out of. They're not doing that. That's true. They didn't have that kind of bread. Uh, no water. Well, in chapter 20, they had the same problem. And God caused water to come out of the rock for all those people and all of their cattle. God miraculously provided for them. This wasn't the first time. If they needed water, God provided it for them. Well, there's no water here. And we detest this miserable food. They'd been eating this food every day, some of them their whole life. The manna. We detest this manna, this food. Without it, you would have died a long time ago. 
miracles of God, providing for all those people every day, all of those years, on a daily basis. When the crisis for the water comes, he provides for that whole group of people. But here they are grumbling and complaining, miracles taking place in their midst, and because it happens often, it's not a miracle anymore. So when the miracles become commonplace, we begin to take them for granted and expect them. And once we begin expecting them, then we demand them. And once we demand them, we think it's our right to have them. Kind of like freedom in this country. But these are all gifts. And they're gifts of the God that they are complaining about and questioning. They wouldn't be there if it wasn't for God's mercy and grace. So that's why they were grumbling, ingratitude, uh, becoming dissatisfied, looking around and thinking, oh, somebody else has something better than I do. Why do I have to put up with this? You know, you, you do it with your kids, right? Why can I have that? She's got that. You love them more than you love me. <laughs> you know, you're all those kinds of things. And it's, it's not. But that's the way we deal with God as well. So this crisis is revealing what's going on in the heart of these people. There's still rebellion there. And there's still a crisis of faith. Do we trust God's leadership in that he is leading us through these things? Now, it's hard. And it's difficult. And it's uncomfortable. And we don't like it. But God is leading us step by step, closer to the inheritance that he is giving to us. Haven't earned it, don't deserve it. But it's a place that he has prepared for us. The Garden of Eden was the place that God had prepared for Adam and Eve. He had prepared that for them. And they were there. But then because of the, of the questions and the challenges of the serpent, they decided it wasn't good enough. That's why some people won't make it to heaven. Because even if they did, it wouldn't be good enough for them. So the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. That's what happened in the garden. The serpent didn't bite them, but he challenged them and they questioned God and the result was the same. They died and brought death and sickness and suffering and pain and all the other things into this world because of a choice which they made while they were in paradise, while they were in the presence of the Lord. So the, as the people were, smote, were speaking against Moses and God, God sent these, these snakes. They began to bite them. And the people then realized once the judgment of God comes, as the psalm says, whenever God slew them, then they would turn to him. Whenever he killed them, then they, they would say, oh, we've sinned. Uh, so when we're under God's judgment, that's when we, our hearts begin to go back to him, when we're in crisis and need and we can't help ourselves. It's a pity because many times, not always, 
many times we bring this on ourselves uh, through our ingratitude, through our grumbling and complaining. The Israelites could have said, well, it's not our fault. Uh, it's the Edomites. Those guys didn't let us go through. And so that put us in this position. Yeah, but the Edomites weren't grumbling. They weren't complaining. They weren't rebelling against God at this point. The Israelites were. So now they go to the very man that they were complaining and grumbling about. They went to Moses and they said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And this happened over and over again during this wilderness wanderings. They would come. They would be rebel against Moses. They would even pick up stones to kill the man. And then when the crisis came, he's the very one that they would look to to bail them out. We treat God that way all the time, don't we? Like they're doing it right here in the book of Numbers, complaining and grumbling against God, but they know God's the only one who can help them. And this is repeated many, many times throughout um, the history, Old Testament, New Testament, present day. The very ones that we condemn and accuse often are the ones whose prayers we need the most to bring us out of the place that we're at. And Moses, because he was a man of God, after God's own heart, and because he was a pastor, shepherd of these people who were like sheep, prayed for these people. And as he prayed for them, God said, okay, here's the answer. There is a solution. You take this serpent and you stick it up on a pole. If they want to look there, they can live. If they don't want to look there, they will die. And so now the issue becomes, we believe the Word of God and we have faith in the Word of God or we die. There's nothing magical about that brass snake. It was a piece of metal. It was dead. It was inert. It was just a piece of metal stuck up on a stick. That's all it was. They knew that. They, un they understood that. The issue was, will you obey God and look to Him in order to save your life or not? If you want to be rebellious, be rebellious and die. That's our options today, aren't they? We can look to the Son of God and have life, or we can stay in our rebellion and we will die. It's just that simple. It's not a complex thing. These little children up here, they could understand that. They, under, they could understand that part. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And sure enough, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake... He lived. Imagine that. God did what he said he would do. So the issue was an issue of faith. That's the real issue. And faith is not a thing, as we've been sharing um, lately. Faith is a relationship. It's a relationship. It's not something outside of us. It's not something we can have one day and not have another. It is a relationship. It's a personal relationship contact between us and God. So in John chapter 3, Jesus makes this 
amazing, radical application of this event in Israel's history. He's talking with Nicodemus, you remember, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling councils, a very important man. And he comes to Jesus at night and he has these questions. We know you're, you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do the things you're doing if God wasn't with him. Jesus immediately speaks to the deeper need, the deeper questions and the hungers of Nicodemus's heart. And he says, I tell you the truth, this is what you're looking for. You've got to be born again. And this is where Nicodemus stumbles. He said, I don't understand. Um, how can a man, because Nicodemus was an older man, how can a man be born again when he's old? That's a good question. Where do we find the fountain of youth? <laughs> Ponce de Leon went looking for it. All he found was Florida. <laughs> and a lot of older people go there. They still haven't found it. Because they're looking in the wrong place. It's not in Florida. It's at the foot of the cross. So Jesus tells him, I'm not talking about that kind of birth. You have to be born of water and of the Spirit. The flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Do not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And he says the Holy Spirit is uncontrollable from our viewpoint. God does what He is going to do. And it's the Spirit of God moving across the uncharted, chaotic um, oceans that got at the beginning that brought forth order in creation in chapter 1 of Genesis. And it's the same Spirit who brings forth life out of death and light out of darkness. Nicodemus is still struggling with this. And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth, we speak what we know. We testify what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things you do not believe. How then will you understand or believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he gives him an object lesson, an illustration to help him understand because as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would know the scriptures well. So he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What a statement. Jesus is identifying himself with this bronze serpent. Jesus is saying, I've taken all the venom, all the poison all the deceit, the lies, all the emptiness, the shame, the guilt, the suffering. I've taken all of that which the serpents bring and I have become that for you and for me. Paul makes it very clear. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about it again in uh, John chapter 12. This is right after uh, the voice of God spoke audibly and publicly. When Jesus is saying, Father, glorify your name, and God gives a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In verse 30, chapter 12, Jesus says, This voice 
was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The judgment on this world was what took place at the cross. That's the judgment for you and for me. The sins of the whole world placed upon him. Judgment was taking place at the cross. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself because all of us are under judgment and condemnation. And if we want life, we will go to him because we're not going to find it anywhere else. The world has all this glitz and glitter and bling and all this kind of stuff and it promises great things and all it does is deceive and steal and destroy and leave you empty and helpless and in despair. That's where we end up every time because the world is a liar. So Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself because he takes all that upon him. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And Paul makes it clear he understood the issues. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is the passage where he's talking about God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God making his appeal to other people through us as his representatives be reconciled to God because, in verse 21... God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became what we are. He took the people's place in the book of Numbers. And so the serpent there was representing their sin and the judgment that came as a result of that sin. On the cross, we see our sin and the judgment that comes as a result of your sin and mine. That's what the cross is all about. He is the serpent that was picked up. He became sin for us, Paul says. Peter later on says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And it's through his wounds that we are cleansed, forgiven, healed, and made whole. He's talking more than physical bodies here because the real enemy is not the physical things that confront us. The real enemy is the thing that's inside our hearts and souls. This is why they had to look to that serpent, that brass serpent on the pole. It's an issue of faith. Are you going to trust yourself and your own ideas, what the world's telling you, or are you going to believe the Word of God and pass from death to life? And that's the issue at the cross. It's an issue of faith. So Anne Voskamp, in her book, um, 1,000 Gifts, makes a statement. She says, Faith 
is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. It's a good definition. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon the saving God. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and all those people in Moses' day, those who looked and lived are part of this cloud of witnesses. They're the testimony of those who've gone before us. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, not being impatient, uh, trusting God to hear our prayers and answer in His way in His time. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So they had a choice in the desert. Fix your eyes on what God says is your salvation. It's a figure hung on a, on a, on a stick. In the New Testament, it's the same choice. Fix our eyes upon the Son of God hung on a tree for your sin and mine, taking our sin upon Himself, taking the consequences of our sin upon Himself, the judgment, the guilt, the shame, the fear, taking all of that on Himself and dying in our stead. So we look to Him and be saved or we die in the wilderness that we've created. So in our church, every Sunday we celebrate communion, the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving. We do that because we are prone, like the Israelites in the desert, to become impatient and weary in the way. And like them, we need to be reminded of God's presence and what He has done for us, for our sin. So I think it's important for us to know what Christ has done for us, how He takes this upon Himself. Remember the issue was that they were on their way and they were almost there and then because of hard-hearted and sinfulness on their brother's behalf, the Edomites, they had to take a detour. And the detour threw them. Well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus in the south, in Judea, needs to go home to Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria. And it's there that he met the woman at the well. And as a result of that, many of Samaritans at Sychar, which is Shechem, many of those came to know the Lord. He stayed with them two or three days, and then he went on to Galilee. Later on, at the end of his ministry, Jesus is in Galilee, and he's making his final trip to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. So we pick this story up in Luke 9. And... It says, at the, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he's going to the cross, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
And he sent messengers on ahead who went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So here Jesus is. He's on his way to die to take their place on the cross. That's where he's going. And he's on his way toward Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead. And the messengers say, we need to buy supplies here. We're on our trip. Uh, We want to pass through your village. And they said, no. We don't want you here. You're not welcome in our town. Detour. James and John are Israelites, and they are like their ancestors. Lord, give the word, and we'll call down fire from heaven, and we will burn all those people to death, inconveniencing us, making us go around. All those extra kilometers we have to walk because they don't want us to come through here? Who do they think they are? Jesus said, you got the wrong kingdom. You got the wrong kingdom. Jesus went around. He took the detour. He took the detour with the Israelites as they were going around Edom. His presence was with them. And he was going to die on the cross for those Samaritans. Later on, in the book of Acts, Philip, after the persecution starts, he goes down to Samaria. Miraculous things are happening. There's a lot of people coming. They send back Peter and John, one of the ones who wanted to call down fire, and John becomes the instrument of salvation to those people. He's proclaiming the gospel, and many, many Samaritans are coming to the Lord. That's a better thing than the fire and destruction, isn't it? It's not killing our enemy that's... that's at stake here is presenting the gospel so that our enemy can become our brother, our sister in Christ. That's God's way. That's God's way. And it's possible because Jesus became the serpent on the stick, taking our sins, our impatience, our anger, our hatred, our selfishness upon himself. So as we come before the Lord, um, our church has open communion. That means the invitation is given by Jesus himself. He's the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he invites all of his people to come. So if you're here as a visitor and you want to participate, you are welcome. The table is the Lord's. Uh, Our church adds our invitation. We would love for you to participate. Don't feel pressured in any way. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But you're welcome to come. And um, normally we'll have someone here that would be willing to pray with anybody who wants prayer about anything. If you want someone to pray with you, there'll be someone there to, to pray with you. So at this time, we'll ask our people who are serving communion to please come forward. We do this today because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body, it's broken for you. After supper, he also took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples saying, All of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sin. 
Jesus is the one who is the real manna from God, the bread from heaven. He's the one who gives life and sustains life to us. And he presents himself before us this morning. He invites us to come with all of our sin, like the people in the desert, uh, understanding that this is, uh, this is our doing and we need forgiveness and cleansing or we will die. And so we come confessing our sins to the Lord, acknowledging his grace and the power of his blood to shed and cleanse and to forgive and to bring healing at the deepest level. And so that's why we come.